Welcome to Sunday Chats 969, the podcast where you can listen back to interviews that were first broadcast on All FM 96.9. We are an award-winning community radio station based in Manchester. And on today's show, my special guest is the fantastic Richard Harris. He's a performance poet and author. He likes to perform his poetry all over the north of England, and he's had two volumes of poetry poetry already published by Stairwell Books of York. First of all, it was Awakening, and now it's his follow-up, Iconic Tattoo. So we've had a chat today to celebrate the launch of Iconic Tattoo, and Richard's telling me why his writing career is only just beginning at the age of 70. Welcome back to the Sunday Tea Show right here on 96.9 All FM on your radio, allfm.org, wherever you are in the world, online. You're joined by me, Ruth O'Reilly, delighted to be keeping you company. Now, on today's show, my special guest is the fantastic author and performance poet, Richard Harris. Not to be confused with Richard Harris from Harry Potter, but this Richard is a true wizard with words. He published his first collection at the ripe young age of 68 that was called awakening and he regularly performs all over the north of england including at the freedom festival and we've got him on today to celebrate the launch of his latest book the second part in a way to awakening which is iconic tattoo which has been published by stairwell press stairwell books so my interview with richard is coming up for you very shortly richard is a big Petula Clark fan so we'll kick off with one of his favourites When you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go downtown when you've got worries all the noise and the hurry seems to help I know Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure. Your problems surround you There are movie shows Downtown Maybe you know Some little places to go to Where they never close Downtown Just listen to the rhythm Of a gentle boxing over You'll be dancing with them too Before the night is over Happy again The lights are much brighter You're gonna be alright now 
Good Intentions from the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris. Now I know my woman well, I'm able to buy for her just well I know what jewellery she likes. That's courage, you say, yikes. So yesterday I went into town, I did not buy a gown, no, I saw a blouse and a stole that matched, and tis my goal to try to please my beloved wife and be thoughtful throughout life. So I did what many men have not the courage to do, but I looked at the sizes, and I knew that they would fit my beloved one, and I did what I knew I should have done. I went inside that charity shop and did buy both of these great tops. Now, this was a great inconvenience for me, as I could not now buy the food intended for tea. In fact, I would have to make a second trip to the shop to get enough vegetables for me to chop so that we could eat fresh food and have a lovely tea so good. But this I was quite prepared to do, looking forward to the praise and appreciation that I was due. I got home and showed them off proudly. She, to me, did exclaim loudly, Oh my, just why? And she said with a sigh, You should not have paid cash. It was rather daft and rash. But oh, why did you buy these tops? They are complete flops. Go on, tell me why, said I with a sigh. Well, last Friday I donated them, not wanting to wear them again. You were with me that day when I gave them away, and last but not least of all, you have the gall to not have noticed I. And again she did sigh. Have worn them for the past four years. Honestly, you could drive me to tears. All I could say was oops and wow. I kind of remember them now. And uh, when it was a very new poem, uh, I performed it at a very posh uh, village festival north of Hull, Swanland, and it was really, really exclusive. Um, people um, who came in Daimlers and Jags and Porsches. And afterwards, a fairly small man walked up to me with his Armani suit and his Valentino tie and said, Hello, uh, the charity shop one. I have a similar story. And I said, Do you? He said, Yes. I spent £847 buying my wife a Hermes handbag and she didn't like it. And I said, Well, um, that's a very similar tale to me for Quick for Carrots. Um, and that's almost become part of the uh, poem. So I normally mention that after it. So I thought you'd like to hear that. So that was one of my favourite poems there from the fantastic Richard Harris, Good Intentions. I forgot to mention that Richard has now actually become a famous YouTuber. He's got over 100,000 views on many of his videos. So Richard lives all the way in Hull. He can't join us live in the studio today, but I have had a chat with him. Uh, this is a recorded interview that we did a little bit earlier in the week. And here's part one. Enjoy. Hi, Richard. Welcome to All FM. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. Well, it's really good to speak to you. We, we've got you on the show today to celebrate the release of your second poetry collection, Iconic Tattoo. And I believe that your first collection was a, a year or so ago, wasn't it? Yes, um, it, it was uh, my first volume was was called Awakening, and it was uh, published by Stairwell Books at York on the 14th of February. So I can remember that it wasn't a Valentine's um, um, set or anything like that, but it, I can remember it was issued on Valentine's Day. It's still pretty memorable. 
and you know we've got a bit of a theme running recently with, with our guests um, including people who have entered into the, the writing career after officially retiring for, from their day job and I think that kind of perfectly describes you really because I, I believe that you were about 69 when you, you released your first collection weren't you? Yes, um, I was. Um, well, I was 68, uh, but 69 very shortly after. Okay. And I was to be offered off of the publication about that late date. Um, I've only been writing now for about 12 years. It was roughly when I retired that I started writing. Um, and um, uh, about six or seven years ago i was invited to the york Lit festival i was there seen by rose crew who is uh, a partner in the publishing house stairwell books um and there were a lot of poets about 20 of us all doing three or four poems and at the end of it she um mentioned a poem of mine which is about male breast cancer because uh, not many people realize that men do die all the time of male breast cancer and they mm. don't look the symptoms um, and I thought she was going to mention you know six or seven of us but it was just me that was singled out oh, wow. so after the sort of drink and nibbles I said oh you're the publisher would you like to publish me and she said no oh, oh wow uh, what a letdown but you didn't let that um, deter you did you but another five years of appearing in York at events where Rose is, and um, I, I did a radio gig, which was uh, BBC Radio Humberside. And after that, she contacted me and said, I will publish you now. Um, and so it was lovely that it came from her. It wasn't just me boring her to death. <laughs> yes, no, I mean, you, you proved yourself um, worthy. But one of the things that, that I loved about your story, Richard, is that I believe that you, you came into all this popularity quite accidentally really just as you were you were leaving your job you, you had some colleagues that wanted you to to write a little verse in, in a card or something and that's where it all begun for you well it, two things happened one I was on the contract management team for account big local council leads um, and um, uh, we had outsourced all the grass cutting, and uh, the council had cut everything green that looked like a grass bank for years, you know, for 80 years, 90 years. But when you went on the maps, you suddenly found out it wasn't a grass verge, it belonged to the firm next door, it was their responsibility and things like that. So it got very complicated, and there were lots of disasters, mm. uh, things that were cut that shouldn't have been cut, and, and everything went wrong. Um, and when I left that team, um, one of the lads there sent me an email. I said, you're really good at writing, because I did a lot of the formal and legal letters. Okay. Um, um, will you turn Wordsworth's daffodils into a silly piece? And I did. I just wrote it into a comedy. And then... Uh, and I got a reaction from all over Leeds City Council, from people I knew, people I'd heard of, and people I'd never heard of. Hey, that's amazing. Um, was and Daffodils one of your favourites? I mean, how, how did... But was that just tongue-in-cheek because we were talking about grass-cutting and, and yeah, all the well, rest of there's a, a village outside uh, Barrack in Elm, uh, outside Leeds called Barrack in Elm, and it's a very old Victorian posh um, village, and there's daffodils on the way 
masses of daffodils on every entrance to the village and the the team came along now i suspect most people if they saw like 10,000 daffodils in bloom would not cut them but they started cutting them and were getting masses of phone calls so there was a daffodil connection as, and of course wordsworth daffodils is probably the most famous poem in the english language oh yeah so wow. It just seemed appropriate uh, to do that. And then my boss was, um, I, I then worked in planning control, and my boss, uh, one of the planners, uh, was a lady, and she went to uh, Paris with, and, uh, with her boyfriend, and he took her up the Eiffel Tower, went down on one knee, uh, and proposed. So we sent an office card, and I wrote a little poem from the middle of it. But I'd listened to her, so I'd got all the details right, you know, and I wrote this little and um, again it produced this fantastic reaction and I thought oh I have a little talent here uh -huh. were telling me how good it was and I, so I started writing these poems and stories and um, I didn't really know why I was doing it and near Withensea there's um, a, a village called Keyingham everyone around here calls it Keyingham but okay. um, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, <coughs> uh, what happened was my wife wanted to go to the folk club there, so uh, she took me along. And uh, there were various people doing spoken word. Most of it was music, but there were some people who um, did spoken word. And I thought, oh, I could do this. And the next time I went along, I took mine. Um, and I got a fantastic reception. There was one about a game that my granddaughters and I played, uh, and it was called Pirate Izzy. And it had people sort of giving me a standing ovation. I thought, oh, wow. That's amazing. So, so your, your grandkids as well have actually been your, your inspiration for oh, all this. Yes, very much so. Uh, the first, I've got a big YouTube presence. Um, I've had about 160,000 hits on YouTube. Um, and, so you're uh, an officially a YouTuber. I bet they're proud of you for that. Yeah, so my, the very first poem I put on there was Pirate Izzy. Okay. And I was invited to um, an open mic. I didn't really know what open mics were. Okay. And that, well, and from there I was invited um, to a sort of working men's club in Hull. And that went fantastic in, and it was uh, the, the most fantastic bunch of people who are now still my close friends. Um, and um, what happened then was I got a phone call from that. It's like spaghetti that it leads everywhere, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And um, I was asked to appear at the Freedom Festival. So it was about six weeks from standing on the stage thinking, I wonder if this is going to go well, to standing in a huge marquee at the Freedom Festival at Hull, because Hull is where William Wilberforce came yeah. from and uh, campaigned for the abolition of slavery. And uh, I suddenly found myself in a huge marquee with 400 people, you know. Um, and it was just so fast. And while I was at the Freedom Festival, one of the organizers said, would I go into the this recording studio? And I said, yes, and wandered in. And I said, what, what am I here for? And they said, ah, well, and of course, this was about 12 years ago, so we still had phone boxes. Okay. Um, and he said, we've heard about this Pirate Izzy poem. Would you like to record it? And uh, I said, yes, sure. So I recorded Pirate Izzy. Um, and that year, 
if you went into a phone box in the, in the center of Hull and picked up the receiver, you didn't get the brewer tone. You got me saying that it was sitting on the old brown settee with pirates, he captured Lara and me, you know. Um, and um, so it was just amazing how quickly it all happened. And then um, it's never really stopped. Uh, uh, I seem to appear somewhere and somewhere else wants me. And, you know, I, I've gone up as far as Newcastle and York and Leeds and Harrogate. Uh, I mean, it's not exactly Las Vegas, you understand, but... <laughs> But to, to get that many views on, on YouTube, this is like a writing career that um, found you, Richard. And, and it sounds like you were being the, the speaking clock uh, there, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, well, I know I'm, that you, you do a, a variety of genres, don't you, in, in your poetry? I write from emotion. So it can be joy or it can be anger or it can be shock. For example, I wrote one about the news of David Bowie's passing, which has been turned into a brilliant song. There's a couple of CDs of my poems as songs, which are for charity. Um, and um, that really isn't in a way about David Bowie and his music, but it's about my reaction that morning, because he got a new album out, and I mm. got him to tour, and there was Philip Schofield sat there saying he was dead. On David Bowie Passing, from the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris. So he had a new album out, causing a first getting rave reviews and a new single that was already a huge success too. He has been around so long, always changing, reinventing, always making comebacks when he has never actually been away. My first memory of him is Major Tom, Starting on top of the pop, so many brilliant things through the decades. has truly touched the lives of millions and been adored. His music will last eternally. He will remain adored. Unique, no one like him, an ever-changing chameleon, visually, artistically, musically. I got up late, overslept, turned on the TV. Philip Schofield sat there, looking sad. A picture of Bowie illuminating the screen. Oh, this album's number one, is it, I thought, and then the words announcing his death came. I could not pro comprehend this. I had been expecting a tour. My brain would not accept this dreadful news. It took a long time for the words to sink in, and for me to accept this tragedy. A man to be mourned, the world over, leaving us far too soon. And yeah. so I wrote one out of shock, you see. Uh, but I can, you know, I can get angry about, you know, uh, without getting too political. I can get angry about the state of the country now, or I can, um, I, I, something that makes me laugh. Um, so, I, yes, I, and I, I sometimes uh, surprise people because I can be writing something very serious um, about depression or homelessness and having you know, perform that, I will then, you know, chat to the audience and then do a comedy. Um, uh, and, you know, they're, 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 I write all sorts of genres and I write a lot of children's stories. In fact, uh, we're in negotiation to issue, to publish my children's stories in 2024 with Stairwell. In 2024, um, I like the way you're planning so far ahead. You know, that's a sign of someone that doesn't suffer from writer's block whatsoever. Well, the, um, 
the thing is that because I had been writing for something like seven years before uh, the publication deal came, and then we had lockdown. Mm. Um, so during lockdown, I looked through my my work and I compiled all the children's poems together. I've got some wartime and historical ones, so I've compiled a book about that. So I have six or seven books that I have compiled, really, and that's if I don't write anything new. Um, but I have another publisher who are trying to headhunt me. Now I'm 70, and I have never been headhunted in my wow. life. <laughs> What I like about this, Richard, is it sounds like you've never even had to consider, um, you know, indie publishing, publishing your own Amazon book or anything. Did, no, did you well, ever I, consider it? Well, I considered it, but I didn't really want to do it. I wanted something that would leave a footprint and would be in the British Lending Library and that would uh, be available to libraries and things like that. I wanted something that, so 300 years from now, uh, if somebody's at uh, doing a degree course or something and talking about obscure Yorkshire poets of the uh, uh, 20th century, they could find me, you know. Um, <laughs> Richard and Harris, and, and obviously there's many Richard Harrises, but you want to, you want to be the one that that's known for his poetry. Well, I, I didn't want to be. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be tactful here, but if you just self-publish, mm. then you are literally selling to your family and friends, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I want... Unless you can get the audience. It sounds like the audience found you as well, though, because you went to that open mic event and everyone just loved you. So you had an audience, an immediate audience, right there on the spot. If I'm going to say something terribly awful or arrogant now, because people <laughs> say, people say, say, oh, good luck at the dig, or, uh, the gig, or you know, have a good time on Saturday. I hope it goes well. Well, I've never had one that flopped. Yeah. You know, there, there was, uh, of course, you have to adjust. I mean, I, I went to um, a pub on the uh, whole arena, um, and it was meant I was invited to be between musical acts. Um, and, of course, they're all sort of 19 to 24-year-olds, and I'm 70. Mm. Um, and um, so they're rather like grandchildren, really. At one point, I thought about them as children, but then I realized I'm more a grandfather figure. <laughs> And um, so <laughs> um, we were hanging around outside. And I said, what's up? And uh, the organizer said, well, there's something wrong with the electrics. Uh, we're in the cellar bar, but uh, we can't get going. None of the musicians will play without their, their electricity. So I said, well, I'll go in. I can feel, don't worry, I can boom. I can <laughs> voice. So on I went, thinking I'd be there for 10 minutes. And 40 minutes later, I'm, I'm still booming away. <laughs> So you cut off the electric somehow with the power of your mind, maybe, to, to get this set going. But I, I believe that you've got um, lots of um, young people who are really into everything that, that you do as well. Well, yes, um, this particular one I'm telling you about, on the, uh, when I walked in, because you don't know who's going to be there, and it was absolutely packed. There were about 60 of them, and they were all young students. Mm. Um, and so I I didn't do whimsical or old or anything, you know, I didn't do um, poems about people they'd never have heard of. Uh, and I have some rather risque, rude ones. Okay. 
And so I did mainly those, and, and they loved them, you know. And eventually, after 40 minutes, they got somebody on stage, and he played his 20 minutes, and they said, now shall we have Richard back? <laughs> Firstly, I've nearly run out of things to do, and secondly, my voice is gone. <laughs> Encore, encore. And, and we're very glad that we're speaking to you today because I know that you've got a bit of a cold um, at the moment. But your story is absolutely fascinating. And it seems to me that it's worked so well for you because you weren't exactly chasing the, the dream of it, were you? It all kind of accidentally fell into place. Did you have any inspirations for, for your writing before it kind of came upon you? Did you have people that you, you looked up to and you thought, I, I would love to be able to write like them? Well, um, I think Sir John Betjeman was probably my poetic hero. Um, and he wrote a um, poem called Diary of a Church Mouse, which I think is the funniest ah. thing in the English language, you know. Um, so I suppose he would have inspired me. Um, and... Um, I've always liked the metaphysical poets, people like Andrew Marble, who came from Hull, and, and John Donne. Um, so, um, I, you know, I've always read, and I've always read a lot of literature. Uh, my favourites were sort of Catherine Mansfield and Virginia Woolf, E.M. Forster, D.H. Lawrence, people mm. like that. All the greats, oh, yeah. I have to say my children's poems are very Brighton-esque, and I know in England it's not particularly fashionable to be Brighton-esque, but, uh, but I, I think Enid Brighton inspired millions of writers and still does, actually. So yeah. No, there is still a few good pieces there, yeah. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that um, in... Uh, my, my poetry um, has travelled well to the Indian continent. I've sold a lot of books there, and um, uh, YouTube is, for me, bigger than there. And I, I um, do blogs and things to um, uh, schools, uh, and apparently my voice, with its clear enunciation and lack of accent, you know what I mean, yeah. uh, a, Liverpool, a Liverpool accent or Newcastle accent is gorgeous and glorious, but not very understandable if you're learning English as a second language. So I've had a huge amount of support from there. And uh, the pe uh, most people who are on Facebook, certainly, on these pages, uh, are outraged that Enid Brighton is looked down at in England because um, in the Indian continent she is seen as the mother figure, you know, the of, of the homeland and mm -hmm. she is ideal ginger beer and ice cream time. Oh yes, lashings and lashings of uh, ginger there beer was... there, the famous five. I used to enjoy my mum reading some Eden Brighton to me actually, so um, yeah, I think it's just... Um, there's a cancel culture, isn't there, for everything nowadays, and, and some things are just of their time, but they're still something that we can carry forward into now. She was a middle-class, white, fairly wealthy uh, w woman living in a, in a small village where she didn't see anyone who was ethnic, you know. Yeah. She was you know, um, and um, I'm sure if she was uh, a new writer now, she'd be writing lovely stories, but they would reflect the times that we have, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my book, when I say it's Brighton-esque, I mean it's got good moral endings to the stories. But I, I have Hindu children, I, I have Chinese and all sorts of people in, in, in my stories. It's not just white English, but that's all she knew, you know. 
Well, I mean, not just Verena Brighton. I think that's even an issue right now. We're only in the past five, ten years really seeing um, representation, aren't we, of, of all cultures that, you know, there are so many... Um, As we should do, and that's perfect, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think you can't judge something of 70 years ago by our standards. No, it's about putting things in context, definitely. Yeah. And, and and I know that people had a few issues around saying that, that they thought she was slightly racist and uh, and stuff like that. Um, and it reminds me of of a joke that I I heard of of yours. Um, it, it was mainly. Um, it was a true story, wasn't it? But it was kind of a, a little bit of a joke about when you were a, a school governor. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, you have researched. <laughs> I was a school governor, and uh, he was a very nice and fairly young man, I mean, about 30, you know, who was the headmaster. And we were being introduced to a new... Um, uh, a new colleague, and he was Afro-Caribbean in, in, in ethnicity, and um, uh, he was said, this is Mary and this is Sarah. No, this is Richard. He's the racist governor. <laughs> and there was a ghastly pause as we all jaw dropped and looked at him, and he, he felt uncomfortable. I said, what have I said? I said, you've introduced me as Richard, the racist governor. And he said, yes, what's wrong with us? I said, well, <laughs> no, I think what you meant to say is this is Richard, the governor with responsibility for disability and race issues, um, which yeah. was, and, and then, of course, and of course, he was a sort of person that would, uh, even though he was a, a junior school headmaster, uh, would make a faux pas every now and then. And it was, I mean, it was hilarious. We all, when we realized what he meant, we all laughed, but... Mm. Uh, you know, it was a bit strange, really, yes. Um, you do uh, have a good way, though, of, of turning these little personal anecdotes into um, pieces of interest, I think, between your, your poetry and, and your writing. Five Strong Women from the book Awakening by Richard Harris. I was left without a mother when young, but that is not what I want to talk about. When that happened, I found strength, hope, love, life from five amazing women. They each stood up to be counted and helped and carried me on my way. They chose to do this. My life became richer, deeper, vibrant, bearable because of these women who chose to love and help and advise and support me, all in so many different ways. They traveled to see me, wrote, loved, baked cakes, gave me shelter, several homes, talked to me, planned with me, loved me. I won't tell each of their stories, and they are now all gone and grieved for and mourned. But I love them all, and they amazingly love me. For that, my gratitude and love, eternal, will be blessed. For example, I had some old friends come and stay, and uh, we went into Holland and we saw this album sleeve of this um, guy who was a, a pianist, um, and this is the 70s, and he was sort of part drag, and he used to wear this glittering gown, um, sort of blackened and, and, and sequins and sparkling, and um, my wife had bought uh, the exact same dress, so of course oh, he wore... God. Yeah. And 
the nine of us fell about laughing, you know, and it wasn't a comedy moment, but it was Eileen's frock. Um, I did like Eileen's frock. It actually was her frock. Um, and um, uh, this album thing made me tell these two friends this story, and they said, well, isn't that one a, a poem? And I said, oh, well, I suppose it should be. And so that became the glittering gown, you know, and I do that um, not very often, but... Uh, it's a nice, funny one, and um, it's just about our life, you know. Yeah. So things that happen to us tend to get into poems, yes. And would it's, you say that both your books, Awakening and now Iconic Tattoo, would you say that there's um, a type of an autobiography quality to, to what you're writing? Uh, well, there's lots of fiction in them as well. Okay. Uh, uh, Awakening, uh, which uh, Rose Drew put on the back, serious, humorous, and heartfelt, mm. has a lot of personal things and a lot of autobiography in it. Um, the, the ones that are in um, Iconic Tattoo are less directly personal to me, usually. Um, I think... Uh, when I compiled Awakening, there were, uh, there were poems that were incredibly important emotionally to me. So if I only ever got one book out, um, then I wanted them to be in it. So that's why they were selected. Um, on the back of the second book, Iconic Tattoo, uh, she's put transformative, funny, and emotional. And I think that's what I tried to be, those six words. Uh, Awakening... Uh, was Stairwell Books' bestseller of last year, uh, and they issued a considerable amount of books, and so I, I'm absolutely delighted. Wow. Congratulations how... on that. That's absolutely fantastic. And was that your lockdown project then? Uh, well, it, um, it came out in lockdown, so no, I, I, I had compiled it a, a year before, and in effect, iconic tattoo, because um, I selected the poems that I felt were best and most represented in me, and I wanted to be out, so I kind of compiled the two books together. But then during lockdown, I have looked at all my work, and there's a lot of it, um, and I have compiled four or five more books, and um, the book that's coming out next year, because I've got one out in 2023, hopefully, with a new publisher who had hunted me, um, and that should be out next summer sometime, and that's all things about the environment, you fracking and pollution and plastic and littering and all things like that. Oh, wow. So, so that's going through with a different publisher then, not Stairwell so, Books. It's going to be with someone else, but it's a whole different topic at the same time. Yes, yes. You know what I'm imagining now? I'm imagining you'll have Greta Thunberg headhunting you and uh, wanting to share a stage with you at this rate. Well, if you want to, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> That would be something I would be quite happy to stand next to Greta Thunberg waving me books. <laughs> I bet somehow that happens. Because Awakening, um, the cover of Awakening was based on an environmental poem, wasn't it? Yes. Um, well, I, I wrote um, Awakening, uh, which is really about a, a large boulder waking up and seeing what mankind has done to the world. Um, and um, I had such fantastic reaction to it, uh, including from a very dear friend, Mark, who 
sent me an email that was, if it had been on paper, would have been about four pages of A4, you know. Wow. Raving about it. So I thought, well, that would be, it's, it's, it's bringing um, great emotion out and people are reacting to it. And I could see uh, the cover illustrated, you know. Um, now, a friend of mine who was a singer-songwriter, one of the, the dearest people on the planet, he is also, as well as being able to sing, songwrite, play 15 instruments and whistle, he can also, is uh, an artist. So he painted that and he did iconic tattoo cover as well. In Oh, yeah. 
next ones. Um, so um, uh, he's called Jim Danby, and he's he's a dear, dear man. He's a lovely guy, and he's a brilliant at everything. It's singing, actually. You know, when he actually started whistling, you know, I can't whistle. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> You've got enough talents, Richard. You've got to leave him have have his whistling. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yes, the uh, an iconic tattoo. Um, I had a hip replacement. I am seventy, um, and um, an extremely uh, tall, muscular, um, sort of twenty-five-year-old physio came to get me out of bed, and I was still sort of doped up with whatever they give you, with morphine or something. Um, and he was covered in tattoos. Was this young bloke? Okay. And he had a tattoo from his inner elbow to his wrist mm. um, of a Pierrot, you know, a French um, clown. Uh. And I the signal, and I said, what's that? And he said, um, it's a tattoo. I said, no, you fool, I knew it was a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. And, because uh, I thought it looked like Twiggy from the film The Boyfriend in her Pierrot costume. Ah, uh, yeah. Did and you actually know that, yeah. Yes, but he was 25, so I thought, why would he know Twiggy? You know, yeah. I mean, unlikely. Uh, and he threw it some bird from the 60s. Oh, so, so he you had, were right. You were actually correct. Very so observant. Had, yeah, he had this huge tattoo on him. And I don't mean an inch one. I mean, uh, you know. A it was taking of, up his entire arm, which is I mean, the cover that you've got on your book, isn't it? Yes, and he didn't, he didn't know. He didn't know. Uh, who she was. So he committed so, to a, a lifetime tattoo. He didn't realise who she was. Okay. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I mean, um, I, I just thought normally you might have Manchester City or Manchester United or, or, or Manchester B. Yeah, Dion Warwick or whoever that you love, but not some somebody you don't know who the hell they are. And so I thought, well, he must have found her in a, in a pattern book. Mm. And um, then I thought, what's Twiggy doing in a pattern book? <laughs> so I found the whole thing very puzzling. And I have another poem because I'd seen a young man in a shop and they got a, he had a, a bird with a placard on, on his big tattoo and it said some phrase. Yeah. And I, so I said, what's that? And he said, it's a tattoo. And I was like, Again, <laughs> yeah. And I knew that. And he, he was a young man in, in a band, and it was one of his songs, you know, sort of Don't Ever Leave Me or something like that. Okay. I remember what it said. So I wrote a poem about that as well. Um, and I sometimes, particularly women, or even men, if they've got lots of writing on their chest, I mean, you wouldn't normally peer at a woman's front, would you? Mm. But if she's got something that's big and colourful and interesting, and then you think, well, should I be looking at this? But if I shouldn't be looking at it, why have they got screen? You know. So um, I wrote two poems about about those two different things, um, and. Um, uh, I was it, going to ask you: was that what was the reason behind you, you choosing a title like I iconic? Well, I'm going to be truthful now, very truthful and direct. Um, what happened was I looked at the titles in, that I'd selected for the book, and there's one called Confusion of the Rose, which is about me going out in the garden and seeing a rose out in bloom on Christmas Day covered in frost. Um, and think, oh, this is 
so strange the seasons have changed mm. um, and so I wrote a poem about man's effect on the environment um, and I thought well that would be lovely Jim could do this frosty big rose and I thought yes people will think old man daffodils um, flowers you need to do all the flowers then it would be like one I, of those Victorian messaging books <laughs> yes and they thought they would not buy the book and actually I want them to buy a book because I want book three out you see mm-hmm. And I want people to read it. These are things from my heart and soul. So I want people to, to read the things, and uh, you know, not just my family and friends. And so I thought it won't sell. So I looked through the titles that I had in the book very cynically. Um, I thought, what is the most eye-catching title that would Jim would illustrate well? And Iconic Tattoo was the one. Ah, so it's not even from a photograph of um, your physio guy then. It's uh, something that, that Jim has actually created. Out that if we made it Twiggy, it would be a copyright image for the Oh, gosh. Okay. So we've done just a generic. Um, it's just a, a Piero. It's not her particularly. Um, but... Um, so many people have said, oh, it's fascinating why you've called it that. And I've been questioned about it all the time. So I actually... It means it was a good marketing choice, doesn't it? I think it's clever on a number of levels. It's absolute genius because you don't expect... I, I know that older guys do have tattoos and maybe you've got a tattoo your, yourself, but we still kind of think of it as more in the youth culture in some way, I guess. To, yes. to have a tattoo, so you cannot guess the age of you at all. So, um, well, a friend of mine who was called Finn Hall, who is a brilliant and inspirational poet, who's um, formed all manner of zooms um, over lockdown and is still organising festivals. Um, and he has um, submitted four or five films, all of which I've been in, um, you know, doing some poetry, some mine, sometimes scripted. Um, but he's at 70, has just had his first tattoo, and I think it says down his inner forearm, um, don't ever let words fail you, which is rather lovely, isn't it? Wow, yeah. Bit of poetry there on, on his skin. Um, but another thing about your book being called Iconic Tattoo is I was wondering, are these the poems that Richard wants to tattoo on the reader's minds? <laughs> You know, there's that level to it as well. Say that again, sorry. You're etching these images onto people's minds with your poetry. So it's like placing a mental tattoo on your readers' brains. Do you get what I mean? That was my interpretation of it. That's actually a lovely idea which I hadn't considered. Um, And it may end up as part of a poem, I think. I think you've inspired me. Oh, wow. Oh, well, I am honoured, you know, if that's the case. And, you know, this is something that I wanted to ask you about, Richard. Are you always on on the lookout for inspiration? Yes. Your writing? Yes. I mean, last night... um, I felt fine. It's only this morning I've started with this cold. And I was at an event in Hull, and I was going to do some silly Christmas poems. And then a friend of mine um, performed a poem about the people people having the right to decide when to die when they're chronically ill. And I have a poem on the subject, and then I have one, a very sad one, about a sister who died. Um, And 
uh, I just say, because everything's on the phone now, you know, I can just dial up a document. Yeah. I used to have to carry sheaves of paper. Um, and um, so I, I switched my mind and, and did those two poems, um, and um, they, they went down brilliantly again, and I sold books at the event, you know. So um, I, I would stand there and say, I've got these books. I'm not going to come round and hawk them round you, embarrass you, try to flog them. You have to come up to me, and they always do. It's lovely. That's amazing. I mean, when you go into an, an environment and you're going to perform your work, do you survey the, the audience, survey the crowd, and, and decide then which of your selections they'll be treated to? Will they get the, the more yes. comedy pieces or the serious pieces? Yeah, I mean, if I, quite often I know a certain amount of the audience. But like, for example, the occasion I was telling you in the cellar with the students, um, I just switched to, to naughty and risque and rude, you know. Yeah. Uh, I thought they wouldn't want to know about old age and things like that. <laughs> uh, you're an advertisement for old age, <laughs> Richard, you know. It's kind of, you're putting some of the younger people that, you know, know all their technology and everything, you're putting them to, to shame. I, would... <laughs> I tell you what was funny, uh, about four weeks ago, I've had, I've had cataracts done, so I was wearing big wrap round sunglasses because you get very light sensitive after that. Huh. I walked on the front at Withenson, you go down a ramp, and there were seven or eight young people there, lads and lasses, but, you know, I would say about 13 and 14-year-olds, so I wasn't threatened or anything. Um, and one of them came forward and offered me a knuckle and said, super cool, dude. Yeah, yeah, they probably thought you were a celeb, to be honest, and, and you are turning into this local celeb, so <clears throat> you've got a nice head of hair as well. You, you know, many people get gold balls by by your age, but, you know, not you. Yeah, well, they they uh, liked my sunglasses, and they were saying that they were really super cool. And I'd got an anorak, and I, I opened it, and I've got, um, like, an Asian Baja, the Peruvian, I think. Okay. Uh, oh, right, yeah. Like a woven, stripy thing for festivals, and I wear them all the time. And uh, he said, wow, that's super cool. And then they all lined up, and they all knuckled. <laughs> So I had seven or eight knuckle rubs because of what I was wearing, you know, so. So you are I, a bit of a style icon. You're bringing so a new I, meaning. <clears throat> somebody once said that I was a dedicated follower of fashion, which is completely, completely utter rubbish because I've never, ever given any notice to what anybody else wears. I wear what I want to and what feels comfortable and I think looks good. They seek him here, they seek him there, his clothes are loud, but never square, it will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best, cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion, and when he does, his little rounds, round the boutiques, of London town Eagerly pursuing all the latest fads and trends Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion Oh yes he is Oh yes he is Oh yes he is Oh yes he is Thinks he is 
icon when you don't care what anyone else thinks and that's one of my favorite songs of the, the 60s my mum used to always play that dedicated follower of fashion that the kinks isn't it so i i love that track but you know the fact that you've had um, a hip operation and there you are looking all cool with your sunglasses i think you're bringing new meaning to hip hop hip hop <laughs> couldn't resist it <laughs> would you ever do a bit of um uh, rapping or, or backing because there's lots of different types well, I, of uh, spoken well, I word have and a music. Rap, a Christmas rap about Virgin Mary, which I attempt to do probably very badly, but somebody is going to record it for one of these charity albums properly. Um, and uh, about eight years ago, um, I was at a huge festival in uh, um, Hull called the Humber Street Sessions, and I was invited with several other poets um, to come and do a rapping experience. Well, it was completely out of my um, comfort zone, so that's good. Um, and I arrived, and it was a vast marquee with loads of people in it, and they played not Gary Newman, but sort of Gary Newman-esque electronic music yeah. handed me six words and it was something like morning, peace, dawn or something. Well, I can't remember, but, but there were words like that. Yeah. And I had to rap to Gary Newman oh. 
music for something like 20 minutes. And I did it, and um, I don't know how good it was, but it did not clear the tent. Um, you know, that's always a good sign. And afterwards, I was told that I was the only poet that turned up and did that. Um, some failed to come, and some came but wrapped their own poems to the music. They didn't accept the six-word challenge. But uh, So I have done that. I mean, I'm not done it again, but uh, if I was asked, I'd probably try. I, I would love to hear that. It sounds absolutely amazing. And um, I love the fact that you don't seem to get stage rights. You're, you're up for, for any kind of performance that, that you can do. What's been the most memorable place that, that you've performed? Because I know that you, you once performed um, on a beach when there was a bonfire going on and you did your set on um, a yoga mat, I think, or a travel rug. Yes, um, well, that was very that was just when we were allowed to come out after lockdown, um, and it was in the open air on the beach with a big bonfire. So it was quite, you know, it was evening, um, and we'd taken all sorts of wood down to the beach. I think somebody demolished a greenhouse or something like that, and brought the frame, um, and so we threw it all over the cliff, then carried it down the beach, and then um, uh, there, there's a friend. Um, whose sister has a remarkably earthy sense of humour, is really rather naughty and rude. Mm. Um, and um, they wanted um, me to do all my very rude poems, um, and so I did. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, that was memorable. I think probably the most memorable uh, was being invited to appear at the uh, Bronte Museum at Haworth. Um, and I've always greatly admired the Bronte sisters, particularly Anne Bronte, mm. and her novel, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, mm. which in the 80s and 90s was re-evaluated as a great feminist uh, statement sort of 200 years before her time, because it's about a woman who uh, is married to a misogynist and is subject, subjected to violence. Mm and has a successful life, you know, which is nothing you think of being written about in Bronte times. Yeah. It would be written um, about in the feminist press now. So she's been really vastly uh, re-evaluated. And I had have a poem called The Headless Ghosts and, uh, and the Wolves, which is um, set on the Bronte moors um, and is inspired by that book. And it's a, it's a gory Halloween one. Okay. Um, and so I, I, I was utterly amazed to be standing on a spot where the Bronte sisters would have stood, and in particular Anne, um, and um, reading a poem um, inspired by her book. Uh, so I think that's one of the most extraordinary things that I've done. It, it does. It sounds, you know, obviously amazing. And, and I do enjoy the fact that you bring historical fiction um, to life, to people's attention um, yeah. as well. So there'll be a little bit more of my interview with the lovely Richard Harris after a little word from our sponsors. 
Hats are on. My special guest today is the fabulous author and performance poet Richard Harris. So you've been listening to my interview with Richard. He's a, an amazing personality. He's had his first book published by Stairwell Books. That was called Awakening. He is now celebrating the release of part two of that, really. And it's his second book called Iconic Tattoo. He's had a lovely online launch for it this week. Richard lives in Hull, so he's not been able to to join us live in the studio today. But we had a fantastic chat with Richard during the week, and you've been listening to that interview. But let's have a little bit more of Richard in action. And this is We All Know a Pinocchio. We all know a Pinocchio from the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris. We all know one, tells lies but not for fun, lie through their teeth no rhyme or reason but all the time, so wearying if they are in your life could not cope if it was my wife. There is some where if I asked the time or what it's like outdoors I would pause and check for they lie without cause in every respect but without respect for you. Most folk lie to get out of trouble, or get someone else into crap, or to gain reward or promotion, to shift blame elsewhere. A Pinocchio lies for no reason, but because they want to be liked. They don't know that if they did not invent stories and bull themselves up all the time, that they might be liked for themselves. But it's so tiring, checking and disbelieving all the time, that really pisses me off. Don't know why they're like this, but they are. And it's not fine, not all the time. So wearying. Because during lockdown or just just after lockdown, during the, the time of um, George Floyd, I, I believe you extensively researched um, a, a particular moment in history and, and wrote about that as well. I did, and I, uh, uh, I said earlier that Iconic Tattoo was compiled some time ago, but at the edit stage I inserted five or six more recent poems so that it became uh, more my current work as well. And um, I, at the time that George Floyd was murdered, uh, I Googled, as you would do, um, and I came across a, a case of George Stinney, which is well documented and known, it's just it's not greatly known. Mm. And it's a 14-year-old boy who was executed um, for the murder of two um, young girls who were battered to death. And all that was proven was that he had spoken to that day and had shown them where some flowers uh, they could pick were. Mm. And he directed them there. And um, uh, so. Um, devastating. It, and he was placed on a Bible as a booster yeah. seat. Uh, and that image just floored me. Um, and uh, the poem is in um, Iconic Tattoo. Um, and I think it's one of my best poems, one of my greatest poems. And it's certainly a story that needs to be known. And it explains to people who do not know and cannot comprehend Black Lives Matters and why we should take the knee. Because um, it, nobody is saying that other lives do not matter. But yeah. what is the truth is when you read George Sinney's story is that if you are black and you live in America then you are reasonably likely to have an early death because of your color and that 
cannot be and should never have been, you know. Um, and I, I get so emotional towards the end of that poem. Yeah. I always do it as my final one. Even if I've got, say, a 10-minute slot and I decide to do George Stinney and I haven't filled my time, I walk off stage because I'm so emotional I can't speak anyway. Gosh, I've you heard know. the poem, yes. I, I was watching your Zoom launch. Congratulations on, on your Zoom launch um, a couple of days ago. And that, that was so powerful and, and so poignant. And... Um, it's the fact that, you know, you have taken the time to, to write that as well as a white male, you know. It, it adds an extra dimension to it, you know. Well, so. sometimes um, a story, for example, I mentioned the breast cancer poem, and I decided that might upset people, so I decided consciously not to write it, and then it wrote itself in my head. Um, I uh, researched the story of a young woman, uh, a 21-year-old barmaid, Kate Leese, who was murdered in Wilhelmsea in 1908, about, I can't, you know, I, I might be wrong by a year. Um, and it was such a tragic, awful story um, that I went to bed and... I just couldn't sleep and I had to get up because it was writing itself in my head. I had to get downstairs and write it, you know. Mm. Um, and the same with George Stinney. I read it and I thought, oh, 1944 was a long time ago. Um, it's not like it was 1964. And then yeah. I thought, 1944 isn't that long ago. You know, I like Petula Clark. And she was born in 1932. So she was, you yeah. know. Oh, she's 90 now then? 90, yes. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and I know she's still... Um, making good records, even up to about five or six years ago, I remember um, enjoying a, a, a track of hers.
absolutely amazing. She had two singles out in lockdown that were brand new recorded, one at the age of 88 and the other at 89, and the BBC declined to put them on the, their, their playlist. They would really? say so look them up one is called New Flag um, and the other is called Luminescent um, and it's, they're, they're beautiful they're brilliant uh, but BBC won't play them so they weren't hits but uh, she's, she's still in Mary Poppins eight shows a week really I didn't realise I, I knew that she was still um, an active performer up to a few years ago but that just sounds amazing I'm, I'm going to have a, a look yeah. at that definitely um, in uh, something like 2018, uh, she started playing the Bird Woman in uh, Mary Poppins in London. Um, so it's a cameo role, but she was Olivier nominated for it. Um, and uh, on her 90th birthday, she stood on stage. Look at the celebration video. Just Google it on YouTube. Mm. Um, and she has a, a cake with um, 90 candles, and they do um, a video tribute to 80 years at the top because, of course, she was the child star of the war so she's actually been famous for 80 years gosh you know, if, if she was American or Canadian they would re revere her not just think dear, dear old Petra she's been around too long is, is she English can you see my, my mum used to love this a bit of an obscure film of hers and I don't know she, she was playing an Irish lady in, in that film I don't think they ever kind of put it on TV now but it was Finian's Rainbow and she was Irish in that and then I was never quite sure whether she was actually Irish or just pretending to be well, the Irish thing too is a very funny accent but she was with Tommy Steele and Fred Astaire in yeah that. And she was the only British actress to dance on film with Fred Astaire. Um, and, um, you know, that was um, late 60s. Um, uh, it, it comes on at Easter sometimes. Um, and she made 31 black and white sort of thrillers and comedies as a child. You know, oh, I've never seen any of them. I mean, well, look at Talking Pictures. If you see Talking Pictures, she's always on that, uh, which is a freeview channel. But she made a film with um, Powell and Pressburger, um, who you know made masterpieces. And I, she's only a small part in I Know Where I'm Going, which stars Dame Wendy Hiller. But um, it's it's an all-time masterpiece, and she's in it aged 11. Um, and she was in propaganda films in the war, you know, uh, when the evacuees went to the country. Uh, Petula was the little girl in the film that left the gate open and all the cows got over, you know, and mm -hmm. then she lit a fire, which she wasn't meant to do, and then it uh, burned the cliffside and that sort of thing. <laughs> You've got Trouble a fantastic memory, Richard. I, I love it. And I think, you know, all this discussion we're having about your new rights and career and everything that Petula Clark has, has done, it's demonstrating to, to the listeners the fact that, you know, you're not ever going to be past your sell-by date if you have a specific talent you can keep going and you can keep reinventing yourself and bringing the past to life to a new generation as well yes well what that is what Petula's done I mean she was the classic child star when you look at the other child stars they didn't survive through very well no. um, and um, you know um, uh, then she became the uh, TV and radio pioneer. She was uh, television personality of the year in 1951. Um, and oh, then, 
the 50s songbird had lots and lots of hits and started uh, recording in five languages. She was the first uh, truly uh, multilingual superstar. And then, of course, um, in the 60s, reinvented herself as a sort of pop rock star and with Downtown dropped the American charts for weeks and was the first um, British female vocalist of the rock and pop era to have a number one. And then she had a number a number, another number one the next year and had three Grammys, you know. Then became the Queen of Las Vegas, then became an international cabaret artist. Then, um, since then, she did 15 months in the Sound of Music being award nominated. Then she, she was in Blood Brothers for three years and Sunset Boulevard for three years. And she has played Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard longer than any other actress here. So she's had a pretty long, uh, good, multi-type career. Um, but there you go. Have oh, you uh, ever considered going on Mastermind and making Petula Clark your, your specialised subject? Yes. And then you... <laughs> Then you'd have to go um, through the second round. So Richard was the leader after round one with 21 points, and he scored nothing in round two. <laughs> I don't believe that. So that's, that's my fear. Yes, that's my fear. <laughs> if I ever get on um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I will make sure that you're there on standby in case a, a Petula Clark <laughs> question <laughs> a, a, emerges. But, but obviously, it's, it's the way she's inspired you as well. I, I do enjoy the fact that music has heavily inspired your writing. But we're almost out of time um, now. So, Richard, what, what will be next for you? Iconic Tattoo is, is out there in the world. Awakening was the awakening of your talents. Have you got the title for your third book? Yes, Change Times. Right. Um, Very appropriate. And um, <laughs> it contrasts, you know, my, my leaving school in the 60s and 70s, um, or the late 60s it was, and I lived in Harrogate and I needed uh, a job. Um, and uh, so I looked in the Harrogate advertiser. There were eight jobs advertised, you know, cleaning, bar work, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I made eight phone calls. I got eight interviews and I was offered eight jobs. All right. <laughs> And I chose which one I wanted. And if I didn't like what, how they treated me, I would have just told them in ruder words to bog off and mm. I just that's another job on the Monday. But that is not the world now. Look what they've done to our land, you know. Mm. Uh, the theme of that poem, and I started, do you remember, do you remember Melanie, uh, she was a singer in the 60s, 70s, she's still going, but... Uh, what, what's her surname? Uh, Mel well, she was just known as Melanie, but um, oh, she called Melanie Safka, really. Oh, okay. um, and she she wrote the song, uh, I Got a Brand New Pair of Roller Skates, yeah? Um, right, and okay. She had, um, I, and it became, I've got a brand new combined harvest. Yeah, one. yeah, I know that one, the Wurtles. Yeah, so well, so it, it was someone else saw it before that. Oh, I didn't realise that. All my 60s knowledge I just get from, from my mum because she was a teenager. It was a big hit Melanie and then they rearranged the words and rewrote it and it had an even bigger hit. And she wrote, look what they've done to my song. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so I, I start the poem with, look what they've done 
to my land, ma. You know, so I, I pay homage to Melanie. Then she was one of the big stars of Woodstock. Right. Hit albums and, and singles, but uh, seems to, unlike Joni Mitchell, mm. uh, she seems to have kind of disappeared from the public memory, which is sad, because she's wonderful. So look at Melanie, Melanie Sav Savka. I, I will do. I, I definitely will. But I can hear a, a singing and music career is um, beckoning somehow as well. You know, maybe you could do a musical version of uh, iconic tattoo in, in the end of um, a bit yes. of a, a side project. So I say for, in, in Aid of Withensee Pier, uh, there are two CDs out uh, called Brilliant and Brilliant 2. They're on Bandcamp. Um, and um, they are my poems, which have been chosen by amazing singer-songwriters um, and turned into uh, songs. I'm accompanied on the new CD by um, Henry Priestman, who used to be in the Christians, and we do a wonderful track together, although I'm speaking. I don't sing. Um. That's, that just sounds absolutely jaw-dropping, you know, and it, all this fame and popularity came so, so easily to you, and I just think that there's going to be a, a lot more to look out for. Where can listeners uh, contact you? Know, I don't know. I don't know how, how many years ago. Well, I want to jump in the car at 80 and start driving on the country. I don't know that. So... <laughs> Another reason I want to get the books out because um, while I'm uh, at this level of health, um, I can promote them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You don't have any problems promoting, and you know that's the that that's the great thing because you, you know your performances do, you know, they, they bring in the crowds. So it's. Um, a fascinating story. It's going to be very inspiring for, yes. for our senior listeners as well. And if anyone does want to check out either Awakening or Iconic Tattoo, how do they purchase your books or, or contact you even? Are you well, available online? They're on um, Amazon Worldwide. They're on uh, Goodreads. They're on Barnes & Noble in America. They're, they're available in Asia, India, um, Australia, on Amazon. Um, but Stairwell... <coughs> excuse me. Stairwell Books, um, just... Google Stairwell Books York and uh, up they'll pop and you can buy them from Stairwell. Um, I, I send them to people in the UK from me via Facebook, but, um, uh, you know, it's probably easier just to get them from Stairwell, Stairwell Books. Oh. Husband and Wife Talking from the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris. Oh, my God. Our daughter's coming to stay. She's arriving today with her husband and kids. Oh, my God, we have to clean. No, we don't. We have to clean and tidy away, fill the fridge, dairy-free, lactose-free, gluten-free too, fill the cupboards as well. No, we don't. Oh, tidy everything on the table, change the lampshades, dust the well, everything, put the dirty washing out of sight, only pure cotton sheets on every bed. No, we don't. Oh, put things in the shed, weed the flower bed, prune the hedge and mow the lawn. Again. Wash the kitchen floor, dust the TV, sweep the front path. It's clean. Oh, don't be a bore. We'll do it all again. Hang blackout blinds. Fill dishes with fresh fruit. Bake a cake. We'll be fine. Vacuum all the floors. Wash the kitchen cupboard doors. Should we paint the garden wall? 
They're coming to see us, not the house. Now I know who wins, so I'll now shut up and grin. Then she arrived, emptied the car, dumped the trammel for four, put the ghost to bed, sat and relaxed, and then smiled and said, Lovely to see you both, and sighed. Now why isn't the white wine in the fridge? Go. <laughs> Big thank you to the fantastic Richard Harris for being my special guest on today's show. Do check out his brand new book, Iconic Tattoo. As you heard him say, it's available on Amazon or from Stairwell Books themselves. And that's Richard Harris with an E. It was an absolute pleasure to, to chat to Richard today. You're